We're in Joshua chapter 7, and if you'd open your Bibles there, uh, I just want to begin, quite frankly, uh, just by declaring how much I just, I just love this church. Um, I, and when I say that, I don't mean I love this church as kind of stoic, separate thing that's not alive. I mean the people in this church. I just, uh, it is a privilege and an honor to be able to um, stand before you and do the same thing that I believe Paul and, and many pastors who have come before me have done. And uh, It's just awesome, and I look forward to it. I look forward to spending time with you. I look forward to getting people's calls, um, and I just uh, thank you for allowing me to do this. And uh, all that to say, this is... Uh, this is not the feel-good sermon of 2010, um, so I'm not trying to set you up, but uh, to know that I truly, truly, truly love um, you, and uh, I mean that. Um, we're in Joshua chapter 7, and we're going to get right to it. Um, just by way of review a little bit, when Joshua assumed leadership of Israel, uh, Moses had led uh, throughout the wilderness and uh, had gotten to see the promised land, but then... Um, God did not allow him to go in, and Joshua, who had been installed, really, or commissioned as a leader prior uh, to even that point, um, is uh, made official when Moses passes away, and, and Joshua begins with his death, and then Joshua's uh, kind of uh, rise to leadership. And God tells him some very specific things that help us uh, kind of put chapter 7 in context a little bit. In chapter 1, he told him uh, that every place that the sole of your foot Joshua will tread upon, I have given to you, and no man shall be able to stand before you all of the days of your life. Only, puts a little caveat on there, only be strong and courageous, being careful to do all that God commands. So, he is committed to making sure he follows God's commands perfectly, and if he does, he is guaranteed prosperity and success. And so, Following God's command, he crosses the Jordan miraculously. He, uh, after doing that, the people of Israel, the men of Israel, if you will, covenant with God somewhat painfully. And then they attack the fortress of Jericho again by God's command in this fairly strange, unorthodox way. And right before what amounts or becomes their first conquest, which is Jericho, God again uh, tells him something warns him about something as they uh, battle. And he says in chapter 6, verse 18, which we read last week, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. And the things devoted was pretty much everything in Jericho. Uh, They were supposed to destroy um, basically men, women, young, old, cattle, animals, everything, They were supposed to burn the entire city, including all the food stores that would have been there because of the harvest time. Everything was to be destroyed and burned, and they were only to keep the gold and silver and put it into the treasury of God so it was still God's and not kept for themselves. And so they do that. They march. The walls fall. The uh, the enemies of God are destroyed, and they've been warned that if they take any of these devoted things that... Um, that will make the camp, if you will, of Israel a thing for destruction, and you will bring trouble upon it. And so, knowing that, they do that, or they, uh, they go ahead and burn the city, and it becomes somewhat of a first fruit sacrifice. The first conquest of the land is given up to God, and it is to be devoted to God. Now, the battle of Jericho, as we talked about last week, reveals that God is uh, very holy, separate from sin, Uh, He is also very loving, but that God's penalty for sin is death. 
But he also has this, this beautifully free gift of salvation. We see that pictured in Rahab. And so the chapter ends as, as you know, all Christians love to hear that the Lord was with Joshua, the last verse of chapter 6, and his fame was in the land. So, you know, to be simplistic, the good, obedient Christians, uh, the righteous guys win, the bad, worldly sinners are killed, and Joshua is made famous, hires his own PR guy, he's pastor of the year, number one on iTunes, and everyone knows about Joshua. They're excited about Joshua. And then chapter 7 comes along. And after that verse, chapter 7 begins with, but. And the verse says, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan... The son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, the whole chapter of Joshua 7 is a big but. That's what it is. It's just this big, ugly but. And it's a really cheap joke, but I'm using it. Now... God, though, in this chapter proves that he is still very serious about sin. And I want to warn everyone that it's not just the sin you can point to and attack in the big bad world out there. He is concerned and just as serious about the sin in the hearts of his own people. Our sin. And just as uh, I will say this also, the last thing that I think I want when I die, but the last thing I want when I'm alive, is a butt like that from the Lord. Okay, follow with me. I know you're like, well, you got it, Sam. You're cursed. I understand. But the idea is this. Think about it. The last thing I want is someone to just go, man, that guy was a nice guy. But he was unfaithful. That guy was successful. He built an incredible career. He had a big church. He had whatever. But he was unfaithful. Man, that guy, I just, you call him up and you do whatever you want. He seemed to love his wife and his kids. But little do we know, he was unfaithful. What a talented musician, artist. Wow, that guy does amazing creative things. But he was unfaithful. That scares me. That puts fear in me. I never want my kids to think that, yeah, he was there, but he was unfaithful. And so God is, is just as serious about the purity of worship in the world as he is about the purity of worship in the hearts of it here. So it gets a little, like, we can deal with the sins of everyone else, but when we're talking about ours, I'm like, eh, let's, I don't know if I want to kill those. And so I'm going to pray today, right before I preach, because um, it's a privilege to preach, but these are difficult sermons to preach. And I'm going to pray, quite frankly, and I probably should pray this every Sunday, that you will not drop a veil on your heart. And you will not think of, you know what, I'm sure there's probably an ache in here somewhere. And a good thing that they're here listening to how you shouldn't hide sin. I'm talking to you, whoever you is, and allow God to speak to your heart 
and not try and avoid what God might be saying here. So let me just pray that. Father God, I just humbly come before you asking, Holy Spirit, that as we read a very difficult piece of Scripture, that we will not distance ourselves from it, but we will sit in the middle of it. That, Holy Spirit, you will show us the darkness of our own hearts and not allow us to be distracted as we concern ourselves with the darkness of other people's hearts. May you be glorified, God, by this passage and by what I say. Move me out of the way that you might speak what you need to speak. In the blood of your Son we pray. Amen. Here we go, verse 2. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, and he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all, to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And I don't know about you, but it seems like right after God's powerful moments of grace is when we're most, or at least I am, most vulnerable. Why is it that when God does something amazing, it seems like sin does its worst or best work, however you look at it, when everything is wide open, when, when you start to believe that, man, I can handle anything, whatever comes my way, and you forget maybe how weak and foolish you are, it's like, bam, you fall on your face. And it's those moments that I think when we are not desperately desperate for Jesus, and we're always to be desperately desperate for Jesus, because the moment you actually believe you can handle it is the moment that you're not desperate for Jesus and the moment that you actually believe something else other than Jesus is going to save you, help you, protect you, whatever. Joshua sends men to spy out this city and it's a strategic outpost in the hills just north of Jericho. It's kind of the last main fortress, if you will, that was strategically placed and so if they take it, uh, they'll be able to really take most of the northern part of the land. And we don't know if Joshua spoke with God. I mean, up to this point, he has been very actively dependent upon God for every step of the way. God has been very vocal with him. He's been very, um, you know, I guess, open with God and asking him. And either he didn't ask or God is silent when he did. I don't know which one it is. So I'm not going to assume that, you know, he didn't pray enough, and so that's why. But something happened here. And so the the spies bring back a recommendation only to send a few thousand men instead of everybody, which they probably numbered about 40,000, or at least 40,000. There's probably more than that. But the city itself was about 12,000 people, we find out in the next chapter. And so they said, they said we'll send 3,000 people. 
And it's difficult to know if Joshua's decision to follow the advice and to only send 3,000 people was a decision based in pride or a decision based in faith. Scripture doesn't tell us. And I've begun to believe that there actually is, might be more difficult than we think to tell the difference between those two. A lot of times we believe that we're taking steps maybe of faith when it's actually steps of pride. And I even think as we begin to talk about planting another church, it's very easy to believe that, oh man, we can do this and not actually be stepping in faith or following Jesus, but be doing our own thing. And so I don't know what the, the measure is necessarily, but I do know we have to be very careful to not be prideful or, in other words, be depending upon ourselves and our own strength and our own wisdom and our own even past victories as we take steps as opposed to be constantly humbling ourselves before God and asking Him what we should be doing. But I think it's difficult to tell. I don't know. Either way, they climb up to the city with only 3,000 people and they are totally um, overcome and they are running back down the hill, basically, and they are killed as they are running back, spears in the back, a very shameful way to die and a shameful way to retreat. And so we need to understand that they don't fail because God... Uh, are, well, they didn't send enough guys. That's not why they fail. If they would have sent all 40,000 guys, they would have had probably what amounted to about 500 casualties. And it's amazing how often God saves us from really stupid decisions, but still is gracious enough to not make it as bad as it could have been. And so they send 3,000, they get overwhelmed. If they would have sent more, they still would have gotten overwhelmed because the reason why they are defeated is because God is against them. God's wrath is stopping them from being successful. Now, Joshua and the, the people's hearts melt, it says. That's the same way they describe the enemies of God in Jericho and all of the land who melted at the power of God. And now you have his own people fearing God in that way. And so Joshua is grieved, remembering what he was told, you will be successful no matter what. He and the elders lay before the ark, they tear in their clothes, they're praying all day, all night, and Joshua simply asks, why? Why, God? Why did this happen? And if you begin to kind of see some of the things he starts to ask and, and maybe some of the things he's blaming it's a little bit surprising because you maybe kind of half expect Joshua to know what's happened. Like to kind of get a clue. Like, why don't you know what's happened? You, someone hasn't obeyed or you haven't obeyed. But instead, it, it kind of begins to sound, and I'm not saying he is, but it kind of sounds like he is playing the role of the, the defeated victim. And I don't like the defeated victim. No offense if you've ever played that role. But we've all played it, I, get, I think, at one point. And the most frustrating thing about the victim is that they will commentate on everything and everyone and every circumstance, but they rarely will reflect on anything themselves. They're always looking out at the problem, and they're never actually asking them some difficult questions about their own hearts. And usually, they blame the absence of victory, whatever it is the victory they need, the success they need, the freedom they need, the joy that they want. They usually blame that absence on something outside themselves. Now, it sounds like Joshua's doing this, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because at this point he's been very faithful. And I think that he is actually just complaining in prayer. And I, let me just like 
I guess, give you permission if I even need to do that. It's okay to complain in prayer. There are psalms that are full of complaints. Now, I will say, though, that there's a difference, as one commentator wrote, there's a difference between complaining to God and complaining about God. And God is not fearful of your complaints. And it's okay to, to express your grief and express your confusion and to complain, this is not what I want it to be like. That's okay. But complaining to God like this is not necessarily the same as to complain to God like that. I think there's a difference. Now, in his complaint, though, Joshua reveals a heart of true devotion and concern for God's glory. And he asks, what will you do for your great name? Now, be very careful asking this question. Okay, be very careful. We talk often about the glory of God, and I think many of us um, kind of overuse that term. It's like, you know, I just want God to be glorified in my life. Really? Because you may not say that when you know how he might do that. God responds to saying, okay, how am I going to be glorified, Joshua? I'm going to expose your sin. Uh, that's not really what I had in mind, right? Yeah, it's not Joshua's sin, but God has condemned the whole community under this one man's sin. So he's, glorify me, God. All right, idol, 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 idol. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if I wanted to go there. But that is glorifying to God. If there was no forgiveness, if there was no cleansing and, and hope and salvation from those idols, that would be a dark thing, but there is. And so God is glorified, oftentimes, maybe even primarily so, by saying, okay, here's your sin. So be careful asking that question. Here's what he says, oh, verse 10, in his gentle and meek way. The Lord said to Joshua, get up! Exclamation point. Which, God doesn't have a ton of exclamation points in the Bible. So when he does, we might want to pay attention to him. Okay? Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, because of the sin, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. Wow. Wow. Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. 
And when God calls something outrageous, might be bad. Joshua listens in verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clans of the Zerites were taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. And then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, and then I coveted them, and I took them, and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with silver underneath. Now, we can't dress us up. God isn't real gentle with his leader. He's not real kind as we would describe it or expect it maybe, not real loving, but with an exclamation point. So I imagine he might be yelling. God snaps Joshua out of it and says, get up, stand up. What are you doing on your face? It seems like if we just listen to God that Joshua must be, or at least looks like, wallowing in self-pity. And oftentimes when we do that, even when we're looking spiritual, right? Eyes face down. Often that's just an excuse to keep your head in the sand and not actually see what the reality of the problem is. And while I don't want to make it look as if Joshua is not genuinely seeking God, I don't know. But at some point we have to say he is not doing what God wants him to do. Because God emphatically says, get up. And he tells Joshua, there's sin in the family. There's sin in the camp. There's sin in the church. Someone, doesn't say right away, someone has taken the devoted things at Jericho. Someone has stolen from me. You go, how do you steal from God? I try to think about that because, like, I haven't really knocked down too many Jericho walls, you know, and had gold shekels and silver stuff hanging around. But how do I steal from God? How do I steal from God? And if you talk about things devoted to God, you begin to see that maybe you steal from God when you take anything that is given to you by God to use for His glory, to be devoted to Him, and you devote it to yourself. Well, what's been given to me by God? Everything! Well, I've, I've worked hard to build what I have. Who gave you the hands and the head to do that? You start asking yourself, well, like, like what could I devote my time? Relationships, money, home, I mean, everything. God gave you the very breath of your life and he expects it to be devoted to him. And all too often we are caught devoting it to ourselves. And God tells Joshua in this case, in this particular thing he stole, if that evil is not destroyed, and until it is, 
you cannot stand. It's not that your enemy is too strong. It's because I'm not with you. In fact, I'm against you. That should, that should cause us to shudder, especially those of us who are hiding sin. And I have no idea if you're hiding sin. But it should cause us to pause, to know how power... How often do we ask about our success? And I know this has been abused. I know oftentimes when someone doesn't have success or prosperity, they go, well, it must be sin. I'm not talking about that. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves, if we are powerless, if we're not having the prosperity, that whether it's just even a fruitful, healthy marriage, asking ourselves, is it sin? David, King David had an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And uh, he didn't confess the sin. In fact, he ended up, uh, because of his sin, killing lots of people to cover it up, including the the woman's wife. But there was other um, people in the military that got killed too. And he spoke about when he had not confessed and what it did to him. In Psalm 32, it's the kind of verse that you should sit on when dealing about unconfessed sin. Psalm 32 says this in verse 3, David speaking about when he didn't confess. He says, when, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, it was really hard because I just felt so guilty. Your hand, God, was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Would God do that? Yes. God would be against me for for unconfessed sin? Yes, pressing. That's what David says. And you go, well, that's mean. No, God loves you too much to let you be comfortable with your sin. He does not want you to get comfortable with a life that is hiding sin because he knows that will destroy you and others with you. And the, the sad thing is, and this is why I think this is so hard, because it's like two sermons in a row, and I understand that, but people, we've got a very tame view of sin. We just kind of take it for granted, and we're, we're so, I have found, I, it's very tempting as a pastor, quite frankly, to not talk about sin. Who wants to come into a church, hear about sin? No. We're so cautious about discouraging people in their sin that we end up going to the other extreme and minimizing and justifying and dismissing everything and not taking sin seriously at all. And in the process, what happens is you make grace, free gaze, we got to talk about grace and forgive. You make it completely cheap. And you forget that that little sin, that little indiscretion, Cost Jesus his life. Well, like, you know, just that little, like, lie? Yes. If it was just that little lie, Jesus would still die for it and have to. Hebrews 10 is a passage that is disturbing and wonderful at the same time. Talking about how serious we take sin. And it says, verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. What's that mean? I think it means what you think it means. And the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. The Spirit can be outraged? Sounds like outrageous, like in Joshua. The Holy Spirit's supposed to be the comforter. Seems like he's outraged here. Verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge those people. No, his people. Verse 31, which I think might be the next tattoo verse. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Is that how we actually think? Do I really feel that way? And I'm not trying to make God out to be a monster, but without question, if he is holy, he's serious about sin. And he tells Joshua, get up, get clean, and get the sin out now. Deal with it. And because Joshua fears the living God more than anything else, he does. He doesn't hesitate. Lots are taken, and the man Achan is revealed by God, not Joshua, which I think is beautiful. Because the truth is, I don't know your sin, you don't know if I'm hiding anything, and I may never know to the day you die, or vice versa. But God, without question, knows. And you cannot hide it from him. So God selects this man. And it's amazing to think how he selected him. He goes by tribe, by clan, by family. And remember, God has already said what's going to happen. Joshua's declared, here's what's going to happen when we find the guy. And you don't see Achan raising his hand, knowing that, right? This is what's going to happen. Um, we're going to kill him and his entire family. So confess now. And you think that Achan might be thinking, maybe they won't know. Maybe they won't, they won't get to me. And then what if it would have gone to someone else, right? Zeraphim, well, what have you done? Achan's like, yeah, what have you done? Zer, come on. Would he have done that? But it gets to Achan. And though he knew the devotion that God demanded, he saw something and he coveted it, he said. And he believed, this is what coveting is, that there was something that was more beautiful and more satisfying than God and his word. Just like our first parents did. He acted on his desire. Now, it's tempting for us to sit in judgment on Achan because of his devotion or his devotion to God was taken away by something as foolish as a dress and some coins. Right? Well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have eaten the apple. Don't for a second believe that's any different than when many of us men throw our devotion to God away for the naked picture of a girl or a glass of beer. Exact same thing. And it's not that our desires are wrong. They're misplaced. God does not 
want to be some cosmic killjoy to say, don't have any pleasure. It's like, no, have it in me, in my word, in who I am. That's where joy is. That's where satisfaction is. We go, what about that? And though Achan was confessional, this is, this is brutal. Achan confesses. Now, it's not until the finger's pointed at him. Okay? But he confesses. And the truth is, you cannot hide your sin from God. It will be found. It will come out, I guarantee you. If you are hiding your sin, it is going to come out. And you may be able to hide how it's ravaging your soul, like David talked about, from all of us for a long time. But eventually, it will come to light by how everyone else sees it's ravaged your family. It's ravaged your loved ones. And it's ravaged your church. It will come out. Guaranteed. And this is what happened in verse 22. There are still consequences too. This is the hard part. He confesses and there's still consequences. So Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent and behold it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel and they laid them down before the Lord and Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his tent all that he had everything And they brought them to the valley of Achor, which is also called the valley of trouble. And you see why. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. And his children. And the animals. And they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him and his family, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, the Valley of Trouble. So Joshua sends his people to investigate Achan's confession, and they find that there are devoted things hidden in his tent. And they gather the entire household in the middle of the valley. And you, you hope... Okay, he confessed. All right, forgiven, let's move on, God. God says no. Even with confession, even with repentance, there is often terrible consequences for sin, especially sin that's been hidden. And Israel kills the entire family and piles up another monument to the Lord. There's been several up to this point. You had the monument at the Jordan River that was a monument of stones that declared God's really power. And you had the monument um, of the pile of foreskins, right? The mountain of foreskins, which talks about God's covenant and God's promise and God's people. And now you have a monument to God's holiness covering up this family. And Achan's devotion is revealed by that monument, but so is Israel's and their commitment to deal with sin in the family. Their devotion was tested. They very easily could have said, that's too hard. But they proved that they loved the Lord and they didn't tolerate sin. 
And it's with devotion, okay? It's with devotion to the Lord Jesus and with love that I warn anyone here who is hiding their sin. Especially because Aiken's a dad, and I believe God um, puts a lot of responsibility on men because I believe men um, have an incredible impact, for better or worse, on their homes and on their churches and on their communities. So if you're a dad or a grandfather or great-grandfather, think about Aiken's sin. It impacted generations. If it wasn't just Aiken, it was Aiken's sons and their sons and maybe even their sons. Do not live under the delusion that your sin is only your sin, that it only impacts you. And this is not a sermon to tell you that, you know, that, that little sin is preventing you from all kinds of prosperity and success. I'm trying to say that there's no such thing as a little sin. Your pursuit of self-glory, your little innocent coveting of what you don't have, your worship of comfort, and your refusal to sacrifice your religious piety, your anger, your elitist pride, your refusal to lead as a loving husband, or your refusal to follow as a respectful wife, your refusal to obey your parents, you're welcome parents, your gossiping tongue, your refusal to love your neighbor, your unwillingness to forgive, your hidden addiction, your overall discontentment with life, or Quite frankly, your half-ass partial devotion to God as you devote yourselves to all kinds of gods in the world makes God angry. That's what the Bible says. And though I know a lot of you right now in your hearts, in your heads, want to get angry with me, and you want to, oh, I don't like the way you said it, I don't even like what you're saying, here's my plea with you. Turn to Christ. I'm begging you and pleading with you as anyone who loves you would. Repent and believe. Because if you do not repent and turn from your sin, it will without question destroy you and it will destroy your family. It will most likely destroy our church and it will impact the community in negative ways as well. If the Holy Spirit is slapping you right now in your heart, follow Joshua's instructions to Achan. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. Confess what you have done and do not hide it. That is praise to God. That is glorifying to God. Confession is the vomit of the soul and if you don't do it, it will cause you to be sick, sick and rot you from the inside out. And don't give in to the shame, the little whispers that are telling you to hide away, to keep it hidden because that's the better decision. You're such a dirty person. Don't you dare tell anybody this. They're going to reject you. You know what the best response to this? Yeah, I'm dirty and broken. I deserve to die. Praise Jesus that he died for me. Just agree with it. Admit that you deserve to die and run to the cross. 
Accept the free gift of forgiveness, but don't flippantly look at sin as some just like, well, no big deal. Grace is free, but it was not cheap. It demands that we come to the cross with humility, knowing that grace was expensive because it cost God His Son. And He freely, freely gives you forgiveness of sins. Our sin condemns us without question, but Romans 8.1 says, and I repeat this to myself all the time, there's no condemnation in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ. There's no condemnation in Christ. And don't for a minute believe that sin isn't that big of a deal, but don't for a minute forget that God is bigger than any sin you could have possibly committed. So as I close this uplifting sermon, let me just tell you that I realize a lot of people will hear this and will not be able to see past the valley of Achor. They can't imagine anything past the valley of trouble. It's too troubling if I were to confess. We can't imagine how God will be glorified in confession because it feels like it's going to be so painful. And all the, the terrible things are going to happen. I can't see past the trouble. I'm, I can't confess because of all the trouble that's going to happen. And there is some truth in your fear. It is going to be painful. Jesus talked about the pain of dealing with sin. He talked about cutting off hands and cutting out eyes. It's not pain-free. And quite frankly, your reputation, your success, even your family as you know it may come to an end. That confession may bring that kind of trouble into those things. But God will be glorified. And it may feel like you're going to be drawn in and brought into this place of wilderness all over again, where it's like I, I'm in this place of almost unknown and confusion and pain, but it will lead to healing, and it will lead to true joy. And I'll prove it, if you will, by closing with a verse out of Hosea, which if you've ever read the book of Hosea, it's a beautiful book that speaks to the unfaithfulness of Israel and really us and the faithfulness of God who pursues an adulterous wife who prostitutes herself. And Hosea 2.14, speaking about the valley of Achor, says this, Therefore, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak to her tenderly. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I will make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, redeemed, cleansed, beautiful. Let's pray. Father, I am so humbled by um, my own sin. And I am in no position to, um, to speak for you. And so I thank you for using a sinner 
to proclaim the glories of your holiness. Father, I pray today for the men who are hiding sin, for the women who are hiding sin, whether it be addiction or unforgiveness, whatever it is they have not devoted to you, Father, I pray that you will help them to run to the cross, to see past the valley of trouble through the death of Christ to the door of hope that is his resurrection. And as we take communion today, I pray, Father, that people will feel not condemned, but renewed. Because you have forgiven. You have provided us hope. You have told us, I already know your brokenness. A death is required, but you sent your son to die for us. Thank you. May you be glorified by our confessions. And may we always be a church that speaks about sin, but speaks about the glories of how you've saved the sinner. In the blood of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 1 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we, say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've read that verse a few times. Go in grace.